Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm currently at war with my knickers. If anyone knows of any pants that are comfortable all day and don't make me look like an old granny or feel like I'm cheese wiring my colon, please do tweet me at Mr Noonan. Just pants. I am wearing what would be classed as comfortable pants from M&S and they're getting in a twist. Anyway, I'm Hannah Zellavi and I once asked our Prime Minister what he did for a job. Is that because you didn't know who he was? Yes, it was. Okay. Who did you ask? James Callaghan. I was quite little. That's probably why it was. It's because I was okay. quite little. I just made a face like Dougal. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> and later on we'll be explaining to Jen when some Prime Ministers are close and some are far away. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and I was surprised to hear Ryanair declare they were the best airline in Europe for delays in an advert yesterday, having taken two delayed flights with them last week. That is pretty good for delays, though, isn't it? Is that not what they meant? We are the best at delays. Sadly, I think they meant the opposite. Later on, I chat to Maria Harris, owner of Tallbird Records, about the joy of independent record shops ahead of Record Store Day on Saturday. We're joined by Russian-American-British comedian Olga Kark, to talk about all well, of the what that's like. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I guess, sort of on a related note, given we're all thinking it might be a good idea right now, Christine Robertson talks to us about why she quit Facebook. And I do Disney's The Emperor's New Groove. Mm. But first, Comey, the people's vote, and meat pie deadlines. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush! Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we put a booster seat under the issues to make them look more important, because it totally worked for Mark Zuckerberg, right? Absolutely. We're just back from Ireland, where we spent three days speaking to incredible women canvassing for a yes vote in the forthcoming referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. So first things first, Irish people who can go home to vote, please go home to vote and make that vote a yes. Thanks. And now more on how draconian abortion policies lead to needless death and suffering for women. Amnesty International Secretary-General Salil Shetty has called for a decisive push for the legalisation of abortion in Latin American countries, where in Argentina alone, clandestine procedures have led to the death of 3,000 women over the past 25 years. Because of course you cannot ban abortion, you can only ban safe abortion. Abortion is currently criminalised or restricted in every Latin American country apart from Cuba and Uruguay, with six countries placing the life of the fetus above the life of the woman. There is a legal obligation to protect the health and the rights of women, said Shetty, following a meeting with Argentina's president, Mauricio Macri. Uh, yeah. There is a teeny tiny sliver of silver lining in that a growing demand for legal changes, predominantly driven by the country's young women, has prompted debate in Congress for the first time ever. High-profile figures from the world of politics, media and business launched a campaign on Sunday to give the public a vote on the final Brexit deal, whatever the fuck that might look like, once brokered between the UK and the EU, whenever the fuck that might be. According to reports, 1,200 people attended the launch of the People's Vote, including actor Sir Patrick Stewart, who spoke at the event. Stewart told those in attendance that his famous X-Men character, Charles Xavier, would have been firmly in the Remain camp, adding, Unity, common cause, well-being of society and debate were paramount to the belief of this fictional character. 
Who said society's dumbing down, eh? I mean, it's obviously very valuable to know how Xavier would have voted, but do we even know how our Prime Minister voted on this? Nope. Well, I'm probably putting her more in a uh, magneto kind of a camp, uh, especially with those avant-garde necklines and, you know, propensity for evil. Still, it's an eminently sensible idea, and if you're one of the 48 slash possibly more percent slash someone who wanted to register discontent but didn't actually want to consign yourself to a lifetime of expensive holidays, hopefully this group is for you. It's not for Nadine Dorries, just to clarify, she said that. So, where do I sign? And talking of Brexit, a report by Eurostat last week showed a 165% rise in the number of Brits applying for a passport from another EU member state. What's wrong with them? Don't they want Bendy Bernard and goodness? <laughs> it's worth pointing out that that's just 2016 figures, so doesn't include people who applied in the last 16 months or lazy bastards like me who haven't got round <laughs> to filling the forms in yet. Forms are hard, people. Some 6,555 Brits got another passport. What? Don't they want a blue one? Are they mad? Are they all colourblind? Maybe that's it. 41% of those successfully applied to become a German citizen, which surprised me, actually, because I thought the majority would be Irish, but there you have it. This taking back control is going terribly well, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So, not at all Brexit-related, bad news for anyone eagerly scrolling through Twitter, Instagram and Facebook for the latest top-level bants from Weatherspoons. The pub chain is closing down all of its social media accounts. The chain's blue passport-loving chairman, Tim Martin, is adamant that the decision is nothing to do with the significant amount of flack he's received for his significant backing of the Leave campaign, or the chain's poor performance when it comes to nabbing followers and likes, all for the fact it once took Weatherspoons five years to reply to a Twitter complaint about slow service. Instead, Martin claims the move is purely altruistic. He realises that people struggle to control the compulsion to spend too much time on social media, particularly when tempted by news of guest ales and how many customers have gipped on the carpet this Saturday night. <laughs> Martin also assures fans of knowing what's going on in cheap, silent boozers that the Weatherspoon news magazine will still have all of the latest scoops. And hell, I know it's one of my favourite reads. Uh, has anyone ever looked at their Twitter feed? No. Mick? No. No, I haven't either. That was a genuine question. No, I'd like no. to know like how how they populate it. I no. get all my news from the Weatherspoon news magazine, <laughs> yeah. Jen. I think I've made that clear. Fair that reminds me, we used to I used to work for a company where we used to have an IT department and then they got then then they outsourced the IT department to, to Weatherspoon. To somewhere to somewhere else. And I once answered a phone and they asked to speak to uh, someone who had been made redundant two years previously. <laughs> and that person had just moved to the top of the IT <laughs> inquiries list two years after they left the company. <laughs> yeah. Talking of crazy. Oh, yeah. It's been another crazy week in the US. And that's before you even look at the strikes on Syria. The offices of Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, were raided in connection with his role in allegedly arranging hush money to two women who reportedly slept with Trump and a potential effort to stop the release of the infamous Access Hollywood grab and by the pussy tape. Can I just say, I think if I was a woman who had slept with Trump, I would yeah. want to pay him hush money to yeah. never tell anyone about it. I would want to go and see those people from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah, <laughs> or, or Men in Black. Yeah. yeah. 
Not enough scandal for you there, eh? How about the re-emergence of the P-tape accusations <laughs> as former FBI chief James Comey launched his memoirs, A Higher Loyalty? In the book, Comey says Trump was obsessed by the claims that he was involved in a golden shower party in a Moscow hotel. In an interview on Sunday night, Comey added Trump was morally unfit to be president, treated women like meat and was a stain on everyone who worked for him. I feel like there's a Bill Clinton joke in there, but that would take <laughs> us down a road of what about I don't want to go down. He also spoke about 45's unique look, and I quote, he had impressively coiffed hair that looked to be all his. I confess I stared at it pretty closely. He looked slightly orange up close, with small white half moons under his eyes, which I assumed were from tanning goggles. We all assume that, James. Trump was notably quiet during the interview's appearance on TV, possibly because he was a tired teddy after a long <laughs> series of temper tantrum tweets on the subject earlier in the week when he called Comey a slimeball and a phony, which all sounds quite 1950s, <laughs> really. Some American once complained uh, about my mate Harriet's article about Trump. She's a journalist. Called her a British pipsqueak. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. In their comments. Harriet's also a mouse, so he was very accurate. <laughs> She's actually about six foot tall, so they couldn't have been more wrong. But yeah, pipsqueak, strong. Speaking of world leaders, they'll have been disappointed this week if they've been eagerly awaiting the postman since back in November last year when the royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle was announced. The lovebirds defied convention and decided instead of inviting politicians past and present to the event, they would invite members of the public, a number of people involved in various charities and um, the Spice Girls, according to Mel B. Why not? The 1,000-plus normal folk to attend the wedding will be allowed access to the grounds of Windsor Castle where they'll be able to watch Harry and Meghan arrive and indeed leave, which is pretty much what you'll be able to see from Sky News' helicopter footage. Still, good excuse to wear a jaunty hat. And we're, of course, in no doubt whatsoever that the decision to sack off the politicians was absolutely to show the couple's commitment to honouring loyal British subjects and in no way whatsoever because they needed an excuse not to invite Donald Trump. Quite. I mean, they don't actually seem to be invitations. It's not quite the same as if you say, oh, uh, when I have my wedding, I, I'm not going to invite all of my family. I'm going to invite my actual friends because, you know, I see them more. Well, when I say invite, I'm just going to let them look at me from the street because <laughs> yeah. it's going to save on catering. <laughs> anyway. They have, instead of asking for wedding presents, asked for people to give to charity, including one providing sanitary hygiene products for women in India, which I think is quite cool, actually. I quite like them. I feel the need just to be clear to say I'm not getting married and I also would invite my family to, you my, to my wedding because I actually like them. You well, wouldn't make them stand, stand on the, the street. street. You've got lots of cousins, though. Surely you'd make some of them stand on the street. I just wouldn't get married. Well, I've hired Sky News helicopter now. <laughs> You're going to have to find someone and drag them up the aisle, which isn't a euphemism. Talking of no euphemisms, <laughs> is it ever too early for a meat pie? <laughs> I mean, I'm from Wigan, so the thought of some sort of time limit on any sort of pie makes me want to punch a clock in the face. And this is the only reason I won't be travelling to the Berwick Hills branch of Morrison's where Linda and Tony Gilts were denied meat pies until 9am. 
I wanted eight large sausage rolls and two steak bakes, said Linda. You could see bags and bags of baked pies behind the counter. But at 8.45am was not allowed her fix. The couple were told they could buy fruit pies, but not meat pies, because of a new no meat pies before 9am policy. What the fuck? The supermarket chain has said there's no hard and fast pie policy, just that the meaty treats are baked for 9am to meet customer demand, and it has issued an apology. Tony's not convinced, though. He suspects a conspiracy. (laughs) There's more to this, he said. Morrisons have got their own agenda. (laughs) 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 Their own agenda. They don't want people to know about it. As I said to you earlier, Mick, I think he needs to get Noel Edmonds on the case quickly. I think Noel Edmonds, who, as we have established, is always up to something, is possibly in charge of the whole meat pie organisation of Morrison's. I think it's a conspiracy to make everyone, you know, eat fruit pies and not meat pies. It's all part of the vegan industrial complex. (laughs) Pass me my tinfoil hat. One of my favourite bits of the story is that because it was 8.45, they weren't allowed their meat pies till 9. We've all wanted eight large sausage rolls. Well, Linda wasn't prepared to wait, so she went to Coupland's across the road. She got her eight sausage rolls. So many questions. So many. Were they all for her? It didn't establish that in the story. I'd like to think so. I'm going to say yes. (laughs) With no factual basis whatsoever, yes. Tony did say in the story that Tony eats fish and chips three times a week and isn't really fussed about pastry. I mean, not that that wasn't good news, but would anyone like to hear some good news? Yes, please, Jen. Okay. Congratulations to England's women's netball team, who only went and beat home nation and top-ranked team Australia by 52-51 to win gold at the Commonwealth Games on Sunday. With England ranked third in the world before the competition began, it's not exactly a David and Goliath situation, but it is the first time the Red Roses have beaten the top-ranked team in a major tournament. So big up to she of the Neville sporting dynasty, if you will, Tracy, the team's head coach who led them to victory. So Tracy Neville has been the head coach for a few years now, and in the last World Cup in 2015, they finished in third place behind New Zealand. Zealand and Australia after Neville stayed on at the tournament also in Australia following the sudden death of her father who was out there supporting her so what a woman wow more news next time we speak well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week where we leap into the sumo wrestling ring of sexism and immediately have to leave because let's face it us birds are unclean when 66-year-old politician Ryozo Tatami collapsed in the sumo wrestling ring while giving a speech, medics rushed in to try to save his life. Some of those medics were women. Good Lord, no! The referee repeatedly yelled over his PA that the women must get out of the ring. Women are not only banned from competing in the 2,000-year-old sport, but they're also regarded as ritually unclean, meaning they're not permitted to enter the sacred ring, which is purified by Shinto priests with salt before bouts. After the women had left, sumo officials threw large quantities of salt into the ring in an attempt to repurify the sacred space. I'm fairly sure that is also a line from Guns N' Roses' hit, Get in the Ring. Salt in the ring! The chair... So what's with the ring sounds incredibly painful? <laughs> well, only if you've got some sort of cuts and grazes in there, Hannah. 
less said about that than there. The chairman of the Japan Sumo Association later apologised to the women involved for the inappropriate response in a life-threatening situation, and rightly so. I mean, what happens if a woman goes into a purified space? I, I think everyone bursts think into flames, well, don't they? I was they? worried Probably. that their dicks might shrivel, but since most of them haven't actually seen their dicks in a good 20 years, I'm not entirely sure they'd notice. Maybe they just immediately shed like 10 stone so that they can watch their dicks shrivel. Yeah. Do you reckon sumo wrestlers are considered, like... Sexy? Yeah. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Hello, Mickey here. It's record store day on April the 21st, so I have donned my favourite band T-shirt, Frightened Rabbit's 10th anniversary tour of the Midnight Organ Fight, thanks for asking, and I have headed to Soggy Chesterfield. I am at Torbird's Records with owner... Maria Harris. Hi, Maria. Hi, Mickey. Thanks very much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Are you excited about Record Store Day? Oh, I'm always very excited about Record Store Day, yes. Um, it's the the big day in the calendar for record shops, so yeah, we're very excited. It's the annual celebration of independent record stores, That's right? That's right, yes. Why do you think it's important to celebrate independent record stores? Well, I mean, for quite a few years, record stores have been an endangered species on the high street. And there was a time maybe eight or ten years ago when, you know, they were completely under threat of extinction. So Record Store Day came over to this country. It was initiated in America. Of course it was. It was brought over here because it was felt there was a need to recognise the role of record shops on the high street and to try and do something to incentivise people to start using them again because... People have been using, you know, online shops. We won't mention their names. But, yeah, there'd been a real move away from sort of bricks and mortar music buying and record shops were closing left, right and centre. So, Well, that takes us yes. quite neatly into Tallbird. Yes. Uh, Tallbird Records. And yes. you started it's... it in October 2013. Yes, that's right. You opened a record shop and you were a woman who had just yes. turned 50. Yes. You're basically as rare as rocking horse shit. Yes, thank you for that. You're very welcome. <laughs> you smell better. Oh. Oh, marginally. (laughs) (laughs) What made you want to open a record store? Well, I mean, records have always been, you know, a total passion of mine ever since I was a little child. I mean, one of the very first words I ever learnt to say was record. I mean, I said it very badly. but adorable. Yes, it is, isn't it? (laughs) But no, I was always completely fascinated by, by records, by recorded music. That love has never gone away. And I got a job in a record shop and uh, I just loved it. I moved to London and I didn't have a job to go to, but I found a job in Beggar's Banquet in Kingston. Great label. Yes. um, It was actually their their shop in Kingston that I I got a job in and, again, just loved it. One thing led to another. I ended up married with children, stay-at-home mum. The years passed (laughs) and uh, I, I found myself sort of at home with two children into their teenage years and been out of the workplace for for quite some time and was basically just bored at home and needed something to to sort of fill my days and to to really kind of get me out of bed in the morning and the thing that had always sort of stuck in my mind was that I wanted a record shop that was my passion and that's what I did I opened a record shop in Chesterfield there had been a very successful independent record shop that had been in existence for about 100 years or so. I mean, selling musical instruments and sheet music back in the day, which sadly closed about, I think, 2011, something like that. And there'd been an HMV, and that also um, went by the wayside. So there was literally nowhere in Chesterfield to 
come and browse music to, to pick up a CD or a record. So there was a gap in the high street for a record shop and I, I thought I'd I'd try and fill that gap. That's a really lovely phrase you just used. You said yeah. for people to come and browse music. Yeah. And actually record buying, I'm a big fan of vinyl, mm-hmm. is a very tangible process. Yes. You come and you rummage. Yeah, exactly. When, when we opened, it was the, the focus was primarily on second-hand vinyl and a few CDs. When you walk into a second-hand record shop, you never know what you're going to find because... It could be anything, really. There is that whole aspect of crate digging, which is, you know, I think the correct terminology for going through records. Thanks, in Paul. Rack. Crate digging. <laughs> I like it. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's that whole sort of, you know, from a from a um, collector's point of view, you go into a record shop you've never been into before. You have no idea what they are going to have, and it's the enjoyment of physically riffling through a box of records, finding that record you've been after for the last. 10, 20 years, you know, and uh, not having to pay a fortune for it, hopefully. I think they're very much shops that you spend time in. Yeah. You, you don't have a quick visit to a record shop. No, no. Do I you mean, find that with your customers? Yes, um, and sometimes that's not a good thing. <laughs> Get out, we're trying to close. Well, yes, there is that. I guess one of the, the things about record shops is that they are sort of hubs for everyone in town who loves music, and some of those people you know are eccentric um, yes I mean we're all eccentric aren't we to a certain degree um we have some lovely lovely customers regulars who who do spend a lot of time in the shop and you get to know them and you get to know their backstories and what's all their sort of health problems and family issues and what have you so we become a little community and we bring people together as well you know that there have been occasions in the shop where Jack has bumped into Mike that he hasn't seen for 25 years. And the last time they were together, it was in the old record shop down the road sort of thing. So it's lovely to be in people's lives in that way. And it's not just about the music, although obviously if we didn't sell any of the music, we wouldn't still be here. So it is an important... That is imperative yes, to be in a record absolutely, shop. Yes. It's the selling of records. <laughs> yes. Do you remember the first record that you sold at all? I do. I very much do. And the reason I, I remember it, obviously it was the very first record, so that's going to stick in your head. But the first record was David Bowie, The Man Who Sold the World... And because I'm a big David Bowie fan, I took that as a as an omen that, oh yeah, this is going to work. I've sold a decent record. It was an Agadoo by Black Lace. Hurrah! But you did sell one of those this morning. Yeah, right? well, we will gloss over that. <laughs> <laughs> and are the David Bowie records still selling well? Oh, yes. I mean, sadly, he died a couple of years ago after the shop had been established. And that was one of the saddest days um, since being... Did you open? Yeah, we, we did. But I did actually, because it was a Monday morning and I... Yeah. When I found out, I, I I really thought, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can drag myself like to work today. It was, real, year, yes, well, it was a real, yes, it was a real sort of kick. Um, but uh, I did come in, and I'd I'd already got, you know, I hadn't planned it. I just had this fantastic black and white large poster of David Bowie, which I stuck in the window as a tribute. And uh, you know, people came in throughout the day, and we talked about him and. I don't think I'd got any of his records in stock, apart from Black Star, which had just come out. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, yeah, way. absolutely. Mm. And so, you know, we we sort of talked about it, and it was the right place to be in the end. So yeah, I'm absolutely. glad I opened. Good. Uh, yeah. Do you think there's been a resurgence in people wanting to buy vinyl over the past few years? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the the figures every year, year on year, there's been a, a massive increase on 
on the sale of vinyl, new vinyl specifically. Um, most bands now will, when they release an album, it will be on vinyl as well as CD and download. So I'm really bad at statistics. I, I <clears throat> you know, pe- people are always telling me these amazing facts about vinyl is doing this, that, and the other, and I, it goes straight out of my head. So I can't quote you any figures, but they're they're on the internet. To, but to yes, look up, it's doing it's well. well. Yes. Do you think cassettes are going to make a? Oh a God. <laughs> I get asked for cassettes Do remarkably you? often. Yeah, well, like, I mean, people with old cars that have got cassette players in them, they want cassettes. Cassettes are also quite sort of trendy in the way that, that vinyl is, and the look of a cassette has been used in lots of, I don't know what the word is. Sort of pop culture. Pop culture, yeah. Mm. So I think younger kids who are into music are sort of fascinated by the cassette. Believe it or not, as well as Record Store Day, there is a cassette store day. Sure. And we took part in the in one of well the, the first cassette store day after we opened. We way we jumped on that bandwagon and we ordered in loads of cassettes and they sat on the counter and <laughs> I've still got them all down in the basement because I don't think I sold any. But never mind, we'll gloss over that. So I'm a bit sort of I've got a bit of antipathy towards cassettes now. That's very nice. I, I had my fingers burnt, but it's because uh, you know they're a trendy thing, so they do well in your sort of city centres, your urban, you know, your Manchesters and your London. It's a bit Shoreditch. Yeah, exactly, Shoreditch. totally, totally yeah. that. So, um, so no, we, we don't sell cassettes. <laughs> Record Store Day, quite a lot of the bands that are on the scene at the moment, they mm-hmm. do something a bit special for mm. it. So what happens in the shop? Talk me through a Record Store Day in a record shop. Well, I mean, everyone does different things. In the past, we have had a big event where we had lots of... We, we celebrated local music local bands because record store day there are lots of exclusive releases that come out this year i think there's about 550 different releases really it's massive yeah but i mean that's fairly typical most most years it's at least 500 releases um but it's you know it's a mixture of uh, new music classic bands novelty singles but all from sort of established or getting established acts Uh, so there's that side of it but we have also used it as an, an excuse to celebrate local music and put on an event with local bands, and um, that that was great, very successful. But this year we are sort of focusing on serving our customers. Yep. People camp outside the shop from sort of midnight on Record Seriously? Store Day. Yes, so there is a real dedication. It's a real sort of big deal for the, the, the people of Chesterfield and, well, for the people of everywhere, really, who are into vinyl, but people will queue from very early in the morning and they rely on us to match them up with the music that they've been queuing for so yeah. so um, with the limited editions yes. of things i guess that yes come out very limited i mean a lot of them are so limited that we'll only get maybe two or three so if you want to be sure of getting one you have to be in the queue early or run this record shop yes or all that yes <laughs> <laughs> a typical record store day for us is getting to the shop earlier than we normally do we hand out goodie bags to our customers with records and vouchers badges. and badges yes. and pens and what have you we try and feed and water them as, as best we can because you know if they've been in the queue for a long time some of them are going to be cold and maybe wet what's but... going to be big this year then oh well there's lots of bowie releases oh. But then, you know, since his, his death, there's, there's always been quite a few. Um, there's a big Led Zeppelin 7-inch uh, yellow vinyl. Keep talking my language. A <laughs> rock and roll single. Oh, God, there's masses. I'm, I'm still waiting for this stock to turn up. Music, the joy of it, mm. or one of the big joys of it, is it is so subjective. Yeah. So how do you cater 
to what you want your record shop to be yeah. and also what your customers want to buy. Yes, it is a juggling act, isn't it? Before I opened, I was interviewed by the local paper and you know they asked me questions, what the shop was going to be like and what, what I was going to stock. And I think I re- responded something like, oh, we'll stop pretty much anything, but we won't sell any Celine Dion. I don't know why I chose Celine Dion to pick on. I think it's fair enough. But afterwards I thought, oh, that's a bit negative. It's going to go out that we'll stock anything but Celine Dion. That sounds bad. So Chesterfield woman <laughs> hates Dion. Yes. Splash. It might get back to her. She might sue. Oh, my God, I don't know. And then I thought, well, you know, why, why would you refuse to stock music that you personally don't like if mm. you have a demand for it, if you're, you know, if you have customers who do want Celine Dion? That said, I have never knowingly stocked a Celine Dion record. I love the word knowingly. <laughs> but you know, we do sell a very wide range of music. So I can't come and interview an amazing woman in a record shop mm. that she owns without doing a little bit of Desert Island Discs. Okay. Um, you're allowed three albums oh, and no. one single. Oh no, that's... You could have told me this beforehand and I would no, have given I it some like thought. The of well, it's, it's actually... I can give you one, which is very easy because... It's a cliche to say, because everybody knows, but my favourite band are Blondie, and my favourite album of all time is Parallel Lines, which is on the wall over there. It has been ever since we opened. That is my favourite album. It's a great album. And, and I will take that with me. one of the first music things we covered in Standard Issue. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, great. Yes, well, I mean, Debbie Harry is my absolute idol. There's definitely a Debbie Harry look going on. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I went to see Blondie last year. Um, She's still got it. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, maybe more woman. so than at any other point, really. I mean, it was a great gig. I would have to have a, a David Bowie record, but which? Which, that's it. I don't know. No one can settle on a favourite. No, I mean... I, I like the best of Bowie. <laughs> it's just yeah, but that you can't have best of, can you? I don't We're know. not Alan Partridge, so no, we can't. No. Um, it would probably, just to be different, I'd probably go for Scary Monsters, because I got into Bowie round about that I era. a bit of 80s Bowie. Yeah. I used to get negged for like an 80s oh, Bowie, really? but there are some absolute yeah. banging tunes. Modern Love is my favourite yeah, okay. Bowie song. Yeah, third record. Um, uh, well, Beatles, why not? Yeah, I mean, again, on. it's so sort of cliched, but it, it would have to be the White Album, Beatles' White Album. Yeah, because there's lots on there. There's lots. It's a double album. Exactly. So you've got lots of Beatles. Some of it's unlistenable, but maybe if you're on a <laughs> desert island, you've got lots of time to get into it and try and force yourself to like it. Absolutely. Um, so that's three. It's it's the B's. I've always said that the letter B is the best in the rock alphabet. You have just proven that. Blondie, Bowie, Beatles, Beatles, and there's loads of others, but B52s, some of them. Bare naked ladies. Hmm. Not so much. <laughs> And single. what about a single? Oh, oh gosh. Oh, okay. Well, just to be different, and I, I won't pick a Blondie one or a Bowie one, but I'll go for "I Feel Love" by Donna Summer. Because you can do lots of dancing to that. It's about ten minutes long, and it's so uplifting, and I never tire of hearing it. So before you build a shack and some sort of shelter, you're constructing some disco ball from yeah. shells. Oh yeah, hanging it from a well, tree. Well, if I if I was creative in that in that way, yeah, yeah, I would. How can people find out more about Tall Bird Records? Where do we find you? <laughs> you can find us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're called Tall Bird Record Shop. Do you know Tall Bird Records is very difficult to say. I mean, I, you've stumbled I've over loved it. it about and four you know, times. I when I first opened the shop, I kept calling it Tailbird Records. Why? I you know you could have changed the name. I could have, but. You are yeah. a tall bird. Well, that's why. Right. Oh, well, oh, yeah, exactly. So, Facebook, we're on Twitter, but I'm really crap at Twitter. Do you know what the handle is? Tall bird records, I think. 
recently on Instagram. We need more followers on Instagram, actually, because we're looking a bit poor on that. We have a website. Yep. Um, although, again, it's a little bit out of date. But we will put our, our list of uh, record store day releases on there. They're ones that we're stocking. So we will be updating that soon. That's tallbirdrecords.co.uk. And uh, well, how else can you find us? That's probably enough, isn't it? We've got the shop in Chesterfield. And the shop, yes. 10 Salisbury Street, Chesterfield. S41JN. <laughs> Hi, we're joined today by Olga Koch. That's right, isn't it? It's one of the ways to say it, yes. Okay, tell me the correct way to say it. Koch. Koch a stand-up comedian of Russian heritage who's come to talk to us about the, the shape of the world at the moment. Not just Russian heritage, actually Russian. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Russia. I was born in St. Petersburg, and then I moved to Moscow, and then I moved here, and then I moved to the US, and now I'm back here. Yeah, because of the things that you sound, Russian is is the least of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but I mean, my name is Olga, so it's 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 very difficult to pretend I'm not Russian. That is a solidly Russian name. It's, it's hard <laughs> yeah. to argue, yeah. Have you ever tried to pretend you're not Russian? Oh my goodness. I think for four years of my life at university, I was so embarrassed to be Russian that I would just say that I was German because I have a German last name. But then every time I would meet Germans, it would be a very awkward moment where I'd be like, but I can't talk to you. <laughs> Why were you embarrassed to say you were Russian? I think most people uh, go through this in like a teenage phase where they're just embarrassed of everything. That and true. that was just like a residual thing. That For some reason, I thought that it would be harder to make a good impression given all the prejudices people had about Russian people uh, for me to work against that. And what about now and all the prejudices that everyone <laughs> has about Russian people? Well, then I stopped being embarrassed because I realized at some point that people don't care about Russians, <laughs> especially when I was living in the U.S. People just don't think about Russia. I think in the recent years it's changed. Over the past, like I would say, even two or three years, people are more scared of Russia, and the, as they should be. Russia is a very scary place. What's your take on what's going on right now? What is it that you know? What is it that you care about? And what is it, as British people, you're scared of? Putin. Like, um, yeah, Putin. We mostly just think Putin's a bit of a scary guy. That's reasonable. That's a reasonable fear to have. But, okay, I, I don't know. This is turning into, like, me interviewing you. But you're not, if you're not scared of Russians... No, mm -hmm. not at all. But they're the people who are voting for Putin. Are they voting for Putin? Well, we had this conversation just the other, just the other day because a couple of years ago I went to see Pussy Riot talking about Putin and um, religion and how, you know, Putin's actually incredibly popular, much as we over here think that he is, like, yeah. um, a dictator. People are, uh, I mean, there's not to say that there isn't some things going on with the voting that there shouldn't be, mm -hmm. or certainly with the elimination of opposition that there shouldn't be, but that actually amongst a hardcore of Russians, he remains very popular. Yes. Well, I mean, he's done good things with your economy and stuff, hasn't he? She says, hoping she's right, knowing she could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> How good are the things when you're given the largest landmass in the world full of oil and gas and oh, wood? And it's very difficult to mess that up. Hmm. from an economist's viewpoint. Yeah. I suppose I always think that the, the strange thing is when I was growing up, obviously, there was still an Iron Curtain. Russia did still exist behind it. They were very interesting to me because I didn't really know who they were. I was a little bit scared of not Russia, but of the idea that there might be a nuclear war. But there is this massive sort of incongruity between communism and then rampant capitalism that has amped up in that sort of 20-year period, which is quite extraordinary to watch. 
Oh, big time. And especially because, so when you think about the history of Russia, right? So we had in, let's say, the most recent centuries, what we had was an empire with like a czar at the head of it. And then within a, like 20 years, that swapped into the Soviet Union, which was a totalitarian state and a completely different flavor. And then in 1991, they had to, from scratch, create a Western state from like hearsay essentially, right? So they had to build everything from scratch. I was looking at the first posters for the first ever presidential election. And this is, an election is something they had to explain to people. They had to be like, you can choose what you want. And people had no idea about the concept. And I was looking at the presidential posters, like, uh, of the candidates. And one of the candidates, and this is, wasn't like an underdog. This is a guy who got like, like he was like, came in third or something. His literal slogan was, vote for me, a normal president. <laughs> he also didn't put his name on the poster. <laughs> so, like that was the level at which they were operating. So anything that's happening now is a result of uh, having to create a Western-styled society within just a couple years, whereas like the U.S. or the U.K. had decades to build that, if not centuries. How do you feel about Putin? I dislike him. And do you feel all right saying that on like the airwaves? <laughs> I, I feel safe saying it here. Over the last couple of years, I actually kind of got more and more scared when I traveled to Russia to voice that. Whereas if I say I would, if visited five years ago, I would have been fine to say that and to assume that people in the room would have been cool with it. Whereas now it's actually quite scary because even like people my age would be his supporters or people my age on the most part just completely apolitical, which again works in his favor. How has that happened? Do you think there was an element of People are a bit too fucking scared to say, "Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a nut job, isn't he?" I-, I think that's that's definitely one of the scenarios. So I think I'm I'm hesitant to make broad generalizations sure. because, like, a it's wrong, but b I think everyone is living a different scenario. Mm. So there was this one joke that I really really enjoy. Basically, when Gorbachev came to power and he dismantled the Soviet Union, um, one of the things he wanted to do or tried and failed to do was, like, pass a dry law. So basically, the joke was that he received a a call from one of the regions of Russia and he says, why are they calling? And they're saying, the people in the regions have sobered up and they're wondering where the czar went. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, I think that's like that's a joke that encapsulates people who are cut off, like people who aren't living in Moscow or St. Petersburg or one of the big cities. They, for the most part, have no idea what's going on. 20% of the Russian population doesn't have hot water. Like they are living in a state where they, all the information they get is from like bad TV coverage and all the TV stations are owned by Putin. Mm. And for them, and I don't, again, I don't want to generalize, but there is this idea that even though my quality of life is so low, if someone is there on TV telling me that I live in a nation that is great, that is fantastic, that is chosen, that is the best. We have our own version of the Pope, who is the head of the Russian church, called Patriarch Kirill. And he is, like, very much a part of this, like, Russian dream, where it's like, we are we're a great nation we we are we have this something called russian spirit and this is like this is like a huge means of propaganda talking about this russian spirit and for them they vote for putin and they believe in putin because that's kind of like the justification is my standard of living is low but we're showing them that we're actually the good ones the difficulty with putin is is you it's the same with trump There is something faintly ridiculous about them, but you have to be careful not to focus on the faintly ridiculous thing about it because then it's sort of you miss the point of that they're actually quite dangerous. dangerous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For a long time, probably for about as long as Putin's been about, I keep saying that he reminds me of Mussolini, who, again, incredibly dangerous man. 
but ridiculous. Yeah. Firstly, it was the Mussolini loved taking his shirt off, and Putin <laughs> loves taking his shirt off and digging and showing oh, himself yeah. working and stuff, riding yeah. a horse. But also, yeah. there was a crazy. They both did these these crazy things where they attempted to up their birth rate by basically offering bribes. And in Russia, at one point, they were offering widescreen TVs to any woman who'd have a baby, because this was out in the regions, literally. It was perfect propaganda circle because, like you say, once you've got a TV in the house, you know, then you can you can you can add to the propaganda. So there's always something quite ridiculous about him, but at the same point, just because you're ridiculous doesn't mean that you're not. Hang on, super dangerous. Widescreen TV, so a woman has a baby. Yeah, and just at the point vibes. that you don't have any fucking time to watch television. Exactly. You've got a kid in the house. Exactly, but Mussolini was the same. Mussolini wanted to up the birth rate. I mean, Mussolini. I mean, the, the Chutzpah on that guy that he thought he could up the birth rate in a Catholic country. I mean, they're already <laughs> plopping out as many kids as humanly possible. That's quite common, though. Hitler did that as well, didn't he? I think it's also quite common for uh, countries in a state of conflict or possibly about to go into a state of conflict. I think it's quite common that the uh, governments kind of step in and go, hey want to produce some more future soldiers for us. Not, not saying nice. it's going to happen but the, there might be some deaths <laughs> so if we can have some births yeah. the papers are going to be very busy. Yeah. But also to instil that kind of sense of uh, patriotism and and um, nationalism and stuff like oh yeah like good good strong national stock yeah let's yeah. have some of that yeah. go on make Look some babies for us virile, yeah because then it's kind of like feeds into that whole kind of nationalistic like woo we're good we could win a war yeah, yeah but yeah. but again I mean we have a kind of an idea over here and it might be wrong but that Russians are rock hard and they will struggle on through absolutely anything. I so mean, basically, have... it was founded, that idea what happened with the Battle of Stalingrad, didn't it? Yeah. And we've never lost it. That idea that Russians can withstand anything. Is that... We've brought a tiger in for you to press Welcome to the studio. He's here tonight. Oh, no. One nice to a tiger, mate. But as Hannah said, is, um, is that is true? Is that why people are, are putting up with... Oh, that's very interesting. Again, they're just like there's so many very convincing psychological arguments. Like, for example, World War II was won because Stalin had no regard for individual human life and just sent 18 million people out to die. And like when other uh, other armies were using weapons, we just used people. In in the Soviet Union, it was like bad individuality was bad, right? It was a bad thing. You didn't want to be special. You wanted to be part of a, something bigger, and you wanted to contribute to like a, a, a common good. So I think the value of individual human life isn't that great in Russia because like. Oh, it's fine. I'll sacrifice myself for greater good, and that greater good is Russian, like Russian spirit, Russian greatness. When did you last go over to Russia? A couple months ago. What oh, is God, the am I, feeling am I back after? That? Yeah, see, <laughs> uh, what is the feeling about the West from Russia? It, again, it depends. I think on the demographic. So basically, if we're if we're covering that, the the people in the regions are those people who again have like the one TV, have very little access to the outside world, and that's the truth that they are living. They're living the truth that is being told to them through television. Whereas if we look at the people in big cities, they are, I would say, like, two types. One type is apolitical completely. They're, like, people people my age who are, like, we have access to the internet. We can leave the country if we want to. Like, this, the, mm-hmm. the magic of Putin's regime is that he is maintaining the same amount of control over the people that they had in the Soviet Union, but with complete transparency. Like, people have access to the truth. 
the, like they can literally go online and see the truth yet they choose not to or they don't care and then if they want to leave they can leave they're free to leave whereas they weren't able to do that in the Soviet Union yet the, his level of control is as high so people who are like my age and who don't care they're like well we, we have like we live a completely western like styled life nothing really changes for us as long as we don't get political our life and quality of life is fine and the other group of people are people who have bought into his machine and his whole machine. And if we're not counting the army, people who work in like the police force uh, in like FSB, which is K- equivalent of KGB, that's five million people. Oof. He has a, like a population of like a small Eastern European country just working in his like machine. And those are all people who are being paid by him. And it, like because he doesn't have so much of an ideology, people are like very easily bought by him. And those people are living very comfortably. They can retire at like 40, 40 something and have a, a fully paid pension. Is that a throwback from um, from communism? That there are so many like state funded jobs, I guess. Yeah. Has there always been loads of people in yeah. the police? And the... Yeah, that makes sense. There, I mean, essentially, it is a police state. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's my age, who's one of those, like, kind of... You keep saying my age? How oh, old are you, please? I'm 25. Who is kind of part of the apolitical crowd. And he said, like, he's not scared of Putin. He's not scared of being, like, a political prisoner. The thing that he's most scared of is those policemen because they're everywhere. Like, they're everywhere. If you're walking alone at night, at, at night, you... In, instead of, like, being... Be feeling safe about the fact that there's a policeman down the street. You are scared that there's a policeman down the street because he has quotas. Yeah. He's going to stop you, and they are so power hungry to the point where they like strip you in the middle of the street to like find drugs on you or whatever. Yeah, and like they, they, they get off around. on the humiliation of it and everything. Yeah. The opposite of that is what is it like to be a Russian in America or in the UK? Is there a level of racism towards Russians that wasn't here previously? To be fair, I do think I get away with it because I don't sound Russian. Right. So I think a lot of the time I have found myself in situations where someone is talking about how like annoying it is that Russians have come here and bought everything, and I'm just <laughs> sipping my tea. So I don't. I don't think I have myself been that much of a victim of it, but I do see see it around like the tension of it. It's ve- it's very interesting because there's like there's so many because I guess I am myself biased against people who support Putin, so it's unfair for me to judge other people for judging Russians where I am also judging those people who support Putin. I think it's a very, it's a very convoluted situation where, I, but also it's like if someone, if someone insults my mother, I'm like, how dare you? But I say terrible things about my mother. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's one of those, it's one of those things, I guess, about Russians where like people badmouth Russians. I'm like, how dare you? But then I'll go on stage and I will really, really lay into them. Oh, it's because it's yours, isn't yeah, exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. It's yours to take the mick out of. Yeah. It's not, you know, anyone else's. Yeah, I get that. Talking about Russia forms quite a bit of your comedy. It never used to until I realised that it was my USP. And then, <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm invited on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important now that with everything is happening. One of the things that happened was uh, basically my dad worked um, in the government very briefly in the 90s. And he was kind of one of the five or six people instrumental to privatizing all the industries in Russia. And I, last year or a year and a half ago, I went to a museum in Russia where they had the museum. I think it's called the Museum of Democracy, which is quite ironic. But in there, they have a huge display about... A huge pri- empty room. <laughs> 
They have okay. I I have a joke about it, but they have something called a freedom room where you sit down and you record what freedom means to you. So if anybody asks, freedom exists in Russia, but it's confined to a small room <laughs> um, <laughs> under twenty four hour surveillance. Yeah. So in this in this museum, they had this display about privatization, and I saw that my dad wasn't featured in it, and it was like to the point where there was photos that I remember having him there, but he not so much doctored, but like very much cut out of the narrative completely because now he's like wanted and he's enemy of state. But the point is, it's like I saw history that I remember and lived through being rewritten in front of my eyes and it was so dystopian and so jarring and you think well they can't possibly be getting away with this we have the internet we have the whole population of the country remembering it the way that it was yet they are completely like brazenly just cutting out people they don't like and that's when I think that was kind of clicked for me where I was like oh I can't I can't separate and distance myself from this anymore because I'm one of the only people who has the opportunity not the only but it's my responsibility to carry the reality with me why is he an enemy of the state um well he was just very very outspoken against the government um and there was like a lot of accusations of corruption and on various levels and various outlets he is wanted for contraband uh but it's it's one of those like understood things where it's like oh he's wanted for this like fake thing where in reality he's wanted because he is opposes the government he was granted political assignment in Germany because Germany admitted that that was a fake thing. Because every time I say it, people are like, oh no, she just doesn't think her dad has done bad things. No, I'm sure he's done bad things. Contraband's just not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you about the other attitude to Russia that you sometimes get, which is sort of the idea of the the old state, you know, the USSR, Mm -hmm. and you think that things like that don't exist, and then I actually saw people ask questions at that pussy riot thing that said, Mm -hmm. were you better off under Stalin? And they were like, what? God, no, go home, read a history book. But do, do you do you see that at all? That sort of sort of a sentimentalization of the old days? Oh, that's very interesting. That's huge, especially because also one of the things about Putin is that he like talks about how the West demonizes Stalin. And how he, oh. Yeah, and that's like one of the reasons they uh, banned Death of Stalin in cinemas was because like, oh, this is just the, the Western agenda to demonize Stalin. Death of Stalin's amazing. Very so funny. Good. Although, actually, it feels like people need to know a tiny amount about it before they watch it, because I don't think... I cried at the end of it. I was, everybody else was laughing, and I was, like, fully crying, because it was too real. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure everybody realises quite how sort of structured his his world was, in that, that bit that they were all too terrified to... Check if, if he was dead. To check if, in fact, I read some stuff that Armando Iannucci said that actually said it was more chaotic than we portrayed it, but it was so chaotic in real life. If we'd portrayed it like that, it would have got into the realms of it was unbelievable. So they had to kind of rein it back in a bit. My my parents were born and raised in Soviet Russia, and like the stuff that they tell is just bizarre. Uh, but it, I think that the argument of saying, "Well, if Putin's so bad, do you miss Stalin?" is the same of like in Stasi Germany, just being like, "Well, I guess you miss the Nazis." Yeah, it's like, like one or the other. Yeah, different flavors of horrible you can live. <laughs> Absolutely. <through. laughs> Um, can I ask you just while you're here briefly, because not many people in the world have, do you watch The Americans? I don't, I'm sorry. Do you not? But um, everybody keeps asking. What they do a good job of on there, I mean, they're showing that sort of blind loyalty mm. that just seemed to exist mm-hmm. to the state that it's very difficult for us to understand because... The most British thing you can do is absolutely rip the piss out of whoever's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And that's like, that's the, I think one of the most thrilling things where I moved... And from like, and I moved from Russia at the, at a time where it was more the most free it's ever been, and like just people destroying George Bush, and I was like, "What's happening? Yeah. This is amazing! <laughs> How are they getting away with it? <laughs> it it's, it's such a thrill." 
Olga, where can people find you? Where can they see you? Do you go to Edinburgh? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, they can find me at Rock and Rollga on Twitter at rockandrollga.com that on is the an internet. Excellent. Very good name. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Must be good. Um, and I'm also uh, taking my sh- my debut hour called Fight to the Edinburgh Fringe. And Set I'm out. Um, I'm going to be talking about Russia in the 90s and how the country was in complete flux and chaos, and it was really fun. 7.15 at Pleasant's This. Mm. Thank you so much for yeah, talking. And allowing to us to just go, well, what about this? What about that? Tell what me about, about being in Russia. Russia. You text me, I'll answer. It's a fascinating time. Hello, we are joined by Christine Robertson, comedy writer, and Christine gave up Facebook quite a few years ago now. On a scale of one to ten, how smug are you feeling? Oh, that's a bit a bit unfair. Like, I, yes, I am a bit smug. Maybe like three out of ten. But I don't. Oh, I don't want to like. I don't like to lord it in people's faces because I get why Facebook is helpful. <laughs> what you can't see is she's holding up all of her fingers. As yeah. She says three. Hong <laughs> Kong ten. Um, <laughs> No, I like. I have no regrets. It's been five years. Uh, I've been five years clean, um, <laughs> and no regrets at all. I don't miss it. And in fact, as the years go by, like I'm ha- more happier with that decision, and like I don't think I'd ever go back. My husband's still on Facebook, and even if I like glance over and like see that he's on it, that shade of Facebook blue is quite triggering, and I'm just like <laughs> just relieved that I'm just not. That's not in my life anymore. You're literally wearing it. Uh, yeah, maybe I am. I oh, see. You can never leave. <laughs> Hotel Facebook. <laughs> what were your reasons for leaving? Well, it was kind of a combination of a few things, but the main thing was, it, and it had kind of been a, a feeling that had sort of gathered momentum over a number of months. So I'd been on Facebook for about five years, and it was maybe in the last sort of six months to a year where I started to fall out of love with it all sorts of reasons but the the main thing that kind of made me start to see it differently was um was the appearance of that kind of live ticker tape feed that you get when you log in of what everyone else is doing on Facebook like so and so liked this post or so and so joined this group I don't think at the time you could deactivate that and maybe you can now and maybe you can hide it I don't know but it just made me feel like I felt like I was being forced to spy on my friends (laughs) and like being told like just really mundane details about things that they were doing on the site that I didn't need to know didn't really care about and then also thinking so clearly my name is appearing in their feeds like Christine is now friends with so-and-so Christine just joined this group and and at that point I started to feel like it was the beginning of a loss of control over publishing information on my feed so you know you've got your status updates and you've got photos that are within your control to publish but seeing Facebook kind of sharing other stuff I was doing on the site with other people, I felt like, oh, I've, I've sort of lost control over what I'm sharing with people. I, that, I am with yeah. you with that because I can remember seeing with absolute horror, it was telling me what a friend of mine was listening to on Spotify. And I thought, if this comes up, Hannah has listened to like <laughs> the Highwaymen by the Highwaymen 75 times on Spotify today. I don't want the world to know that. Yeah, Yeah, I know. And I can see how that kind of thing of like, 
tell your friends what you're listening to on Spotify or share the pizza you just ordered on Domino's. I can see how that's kind of harmless fun on a level, but ultimately it's like, it's just dry, it's marketing for them really, yeah. and it's just kind of driving more customers, hopefully. And that doesn't surprise me in a way. I mean, the site is free and they're going to try, you know, they need to make their money somehow, but obviously what's been in the news recently, it just brings it all to light. They don't seem to be struggling for cash. No, not at all. Yeah, exactly. So they don't need to, yeah, they don't need to tell what, what I'm listening to on Spotify or whatever. But yeah, so it was it was that. It felt like a, a, a an address book that had got out of control. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? A sentient address <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, exactly. above its station. Yeah, an address on... book that was recording your phone conversations yeah. and using it to yeah. uh, drive advertising in your direction. Exactly. Or like... My address book had started to stalk me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so that was kind of... That felt a bit uncomfortable. Just more of that kind of thing, more of those kinds of functions kept appearing on the site where I felt like Facebook was obsessed with every, like, excruciating detail of my life that I don't really care about, but Facebook seemed to, like, just hang on to and try and grab wherever they could. I was like, oh, Facebook, relax. Like, you're obsessed with me. Well, (laughs) Facebook are currently what I can only describe as stalking me because I go on Facebook about once a week and it's usually for work, maybe. Yeah. But... When I go there, I will have somewhere close to 30 notifications in the week and they will be things like, did you see that your sister has put put up a post? Or have you seen... Um, And no matter how many times I say... I don't want any of that stuff sent to me. Yeah. Or I'll get, now I get yeah, it's emails really telling me, you yeah. haven't logged on for a fortnight. Yeah, they're desperate. Like, yeah. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah, they're desperate. Literally, <laughs> fuck off. It's like, I don't need some somebody else guilting me that I don't see yeah. them enough in my life. You know, let yeah. alone a computer program, essentially, which is what that Hannah's is. Hannah's starting a new app called Fuck Off Book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you get that, you know, you get groups and stuff on Facebook. I always think it's really funny when you, it's when people like Facebook on Facebook. Yeah. Why do it? It feels why? weird, doesn't it? Like, yeah. surely, just that they're here should give you like why? Do, There's no explaining weird. people, Jen. Some people collect old newspapers <laughs> and tin cans. <laughs> no, There's no like, logic to people. Yeah, you know. Well, like some of my friends apparently on Facebook like Facebook. Like, surely the job's already been done. Anyway. Yeah, it's odd. Mm. I think with the current climate, there are probably a lot of people who would like to ditch Facebook, but they don't make it easy, do they? No. Or it doesn't make it easy. Maybe not. I mean, I left, so I left about five years ago and it felt fairly easy to do it. So maybe it's harder now. I don't know. Obviously, you can deactivate your account. So it still kind of exists, but it's just deactivated so I, I'm assuming you don't show up in searches and stuff and if you changed your mind as some friends of mine have you can go back and reactivate it and I deleted it although I'm you know I'm sure you never really have a deleted Facebook account it, my profile still exists there I'm sure <laughs> I was going to ask you that do you know what happened to all of the information you will have inputted into Facebook over no, the years I, I'm sure it's stored somewhere because I expect that they I think it's in Mark Zuckerberg's booster seat uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I expect they are monitoring accounts that leave and noting if they come back and when and maybe why and then that will inform how they might try and entice other people to come back I don't know but I'm sure yeah I'm sure my details and everything I ever posted are still on a cloud somewhere in Zuckerberg's loft do you use (laughs) is that where that is yeah (laughs) do you use other forms of social media I do I I think Twitter is my only 
like social media platform and at, when I left Facebook Twitter was so much more appealing for many different reasons and I mean this is a separate discussion but Twitter has, has changed a lot since Brexit and Trump in particular it's not as joyful a place to, to go anymore but at the time I was getting a lot more joy out of Twitter than I was from Facebook and I, I'm a writer so I guess you know my, my I work with words and Twitter is obviously all about that Instagram I had an account so that I could follow my sister when she went traveling around the world and then deleted it when she came back. So yeah, Twitter, but even that is, you know, is troubling in its own way these days. In fairness, it is reflective of the population, which is troubling yes. in its own yeah. ways these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, you no longer have the FOMO associated with not being on, on social... No, no one, certainly not... No, I feel like if something is important enough, I will hear about it somehow. You know, I don't need to be on Facebook or on Instagram or, you know, you hear about most things through Twitter. You hear a lot of lies on Twitter as well, but... Weatherspoon's news magazine, I've heard, it's got, it's got a lot of scoops. <laughs> but before I left Facebook, I made a point of just messaging people that I cared about staying in touch with um, and just making sure they had my details and I had theirs. Um, and and I've just stayed in touch with people, you know, through text or WhatsApp or email. Um, and that's fine. Uh, so, yeah, I, and then I can catch up. And it's quite nice because I'm not on Facebook. When we do meet, they're telling me news about their life that I might have already known if I'd been on Facebook. But actually, it's nice to just hear it. Do you know, that is one of the things that drives me the most mad about <laughs> it is when people tell me what somebody else has posted on their Facebook page and I have been on there and I'm like well now that would have been quite a nice story when I got to their house and they said yeah. by the way I'm pregnant or by the way I've got a new job and I hadn't heard that off somebody else yeah. some third hand account of someone who'd read it off Facebook that actually yeah, does yeah. get on my nerves <laughs> when you meet new people and you're not on Facebook yeah. is there a specific sort of reaction do you get <laughs> I think soon after I deleted my account there was a lot more surprise then than there is now. I think now people are just like, oh, okay, you're not on Facebook, so how else can I contact you? But certainly when I first deleted my account, I told some colleagues who worked in social media, you know, for the company I worked with, and they were like, oh, God, I'm kind of jealous. Like, I wish I could, but I need it for work and, like, that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it felt unusual five years ago, but nowadays I feel like it's a bit more common. I think in the last few months, people have had put in some serious thoughts yeah. into what information they are putting out there and yeah. what, what information other people are taking yeah. and using. It does feel a bit like setting the privacy settings after the horse has told Zuckerberg yeah. everything he ever needed to know. It really, it really does. And I suppose as well, though, you know, if you think that you were being sent that stuff, that, that Trump stuff, that, you know, if, if you've been highlighted... Uh, by Cambridge Analytica as a potential like person who might vote Trump or something. The idea of that would be absolutely horrifying to me. The idea that 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 maybe it won't be for those people. Yeah. But you would hope there will be some people that have thought, "Oh my God, that's I look racist on my social yeah, media yeah. profile," even yeah. if it's because they are racist but they don't realise they're racist, yeah. which happens with quite a lot. But yeah. It's like you remember that guy that went into the cinema and shot all those people who were watching. Batman. It was in America about five years yeah, ago. Yeah, ago, and there was a story. And I was watching it with we were in the newsroom. I was watching it with my um, a friend of mine in the newsroom up on the screen, and they were interviewing a girl who'd been on a date with him on a, a dating app. Had sent them out on a date about three days before, and they were interviewing her about him. And I was just like, man, can you imagine if 
Yeah, a computer program paired you with someone who later walked into a cinema and shot ninety-eight percent. I was like, "What the fuck? I would never use a dating app ever again." I don't know what that would have told me Just about. Never myself. leave the house yeah. ever yeah. again. Yeah. And there's definitely something in the idea of algorithms thinking they know you, yeah. or like suggesting things like, "We think you'd like this," or "Did you see this?" or you know. And I just think you don't know me, and, that, and but quite often they don't. When my when my mum was poorly and she really hurt her back, um, I had to like buy a lot of stuff online that you know that I wouldn't. I bought a wheelchair. I bought a chair that helps her st- stand up. Suddenly, my Facebook was invaded <laughs> with things like saying "Do you yourself?" and things like that. And I was like, "Sorry about those messages." Does Hannah. nobody else? <laughs> does nobody else on earth do that thing where they're actually shopping for another person? Do you think that suddenly I want a stand a yeah. stair lift because I bought my mum? But a also, it's a dickhead, right? I bought a pair of boots from Office, and it keeps advertising me that pair of boots that I bought. Like I might need a spare. <laughs> yeah. What? A few years ago, they did. I think they do something like sort of around every new year and it's like your year in review type thing yeah. <laughs> and then they put one of the pictures that you've posted <laughs> like, <laughs> on the <laughs> like main image for it until you click into it and the husband of one of my friends <laughs> shared his you know, whatever it said like your year in, in review or blah 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 but it kind of like it felt very very personal However it was phrased, it felt very personal. And the picture was one he had posted as part of some sort of joke. Some dude from, I would say, the late 70s or early 80s who looked a bit like Ian Rush had this like really thick, like, bushy tash wearing a Doctor Who jumper. Like a woolly <laughs> Doctor Who jumper. And it was just the funniest picture. I wish I could show it to you. It was hilarious. No one's laughing, but it was hilarious. <laughs> and he's and he posted it, and he's like, "This is the cruelest use of algorithms." <laughs> well, I mean, there are ever seen. there are genuinely cruel uh, uses of algorithm. When people don't delete Facebook pages of people who've since died, mm. you get a message to yeah. remind you it was their birthday today, which is horrible. Yeah, you also get an on this day posting of, "Oh, this was the day my dad died, or yeah. my pet died, or whatever." Or whatever. So yeah, funeral or whatever. Yeah. So. <laughs> We thought you'd like to remember this. Fuck off, Facebook. I actually did find out that someone I knew had died through Facebook. And we'd met when we were travelling and we would email each other. But I didn't know any of her family or friends, but we were mates on Facebook. And that was like one mutual friend was each other. There was no other way I'd have found out, actually, because no one would have known to email me. So it was kind of nice to know what happened to her, why she hadn't replied to my last email. But also, what a weird way to find out. Yeah. And odd that on a site that is obsessed with sharing as much information as possible, that you feel like you almost found out something really important by accident or being yeah. like, yeah, yeah. So it's all backwards, isn't it? <laughs> You've got the right idea. I, I think I could do it, but I have to say I don't think we we, we use it for work, mm. yeah. and I think that's the that's the problem. It is a relatively effective tool for yes. small businesses. Yeah, yeah, but. But that said, I think once any small business starts, or when any business starts talking like that, then it's not, it's not what the original concept was. It's yeah. suddenly become invaded by, you know, how can we make money out of also, this? Also, they've already got all our information, so you know, if you leave now, it doesn't make any difference. No. <laughs> We're already screwed. I don't know about you, Jen, but I'm only forty-one. I intend to make more memories. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait till you see my year in review. Just me dressed as Ian Rush <laughs> in a Doctor Who jumper. 
<laughs> I'm going to find this picture for you because it is fucking amazing. It's amazing. If not on Facebook, where can people find you if they want to see what you're up to? Oh, well, I'm on Twitter. So I'm xdean underscore robbo. Underscores aren't helpful in Twitter handles. Sorry, but that's what it. That's what I am. <laughs> Christine, thank you so much for being an inspiration that none of us are brave enough to follow. Oh, but no. we, <laughs> we applaud you anyway. Oh. <laughs> thank you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am speaking to journalist and running enthusiast, if indeed not an obsessive, she says, Kate Carter, who is going to talk to us about running because it's the London Marathon on Sunday. Kate. You are a running enthusiast slash obsessive. Why? So many reasons. Well, I got into running quite late. I was, I was, I have got, I've got two kids, and I was on maternity leave with the youngest one, so I had you know a baby and a three-year-old, and I just kind of wanted to get a bit fitter again. And I had always hated running up to that point. I'd tried it a few times and thought, no, this isn't for me. But at that point, something just clicked, which may have been something to do with the fact that it was moving in the opposite direction from the uh, aforementioned children. Uh, but yeah, it just kind of, I, I kind of fell into it at that point and, and didn't really stop. It's, fu- it's a funny thing about running. And I use the word running um, very loosely indeed. I did run the London Marathon eight years ago or something like that. But before that, mm-hmm. I had not really exercised for about 10 years. I wasn't really interested in in physical activity really at all and I hated running with a passion but you kind of get into it don't you why do you think so many people take to running later on in life I think it's maybe something to do with the way that your mindset perhaps changes as you get a little bit older so I mean I was exactly the same in my 20s last thing I would have wanted to do is go for a run I was far too busy you know going out having fun getting pissed being hungover, getting pissed again, etc. And you know, I, and I wanted to see people. I think maybe you're still quite insecure, and so on. Well, most people in their twenties, you want to be with people all the time, and you want to be kind of seeing your friends and in a relationship or whatever it is. And then maybe when you get sort of into your thirties, perhaps later, maybe you start valuing time by yourself a bit more. And certainly when you've got very small children, I think you really cherish any time by yourself. Mm-hmm. And so running kind of gives you completely justified time by yourself like you know that no one expects you to be contactable when you're on a run um it's completely fine it's not like kind of just going and going to a spa or something you kind of feel like you're earning that time mm. so yeah i think that might be one of the reasons um and then you can start running quite late and still be pretty good at it like you don't have to have run since you were a kid to be a pretty decent runner in your 30s and 40s as it turns out, you can still kind of keep getting better. And I think that's quite encouraging because most, you know, most people think anything sport related, once they're past, I don't know, about 25, it's all going to go downhill. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. One of the things the This Girl Can campaign people told me is that apparently having kids is a barrier to women taking up sport because they feel like that time is kind of self-indulgent. Yeah, I see that on on sometimes kind of some forums and stuff. Like, I feel really guilty. I don't. I'd love to do a marathon, but I'd feel really guilty about all the time away from my kids and stuff. And I mean, that's definitely it's clearly a, a thing. It's not really a thing that I particularly understand because 
my view has always been like to be the best parent you need to be happy and if being happy means you've got to go out and get some endorphins going around your system then that is definitely what you should do like you're you know you're not going to be a cheery parent full of great games if you're kind of just really itching to get away from the little buggers all the time <laughs> so so yeah my view is that it's not selfish if if it makes you a better person sort of for the oh, 23 amazing. hours a day when you are with them and there's also the whole role model thing which i think does particularly kind of kick in when it comes to mothers and and perhaps girls as well that they look at you going out doing your runs and they think that that just completely normalizes exercise and and sport and things as something that that is normal that people do for fun that's you know can, i mean can be sociable and they don't kind of think that's unusual and, and that's how i hope my girls see it they think it's completely normal they also think it's completely normal that women are faster than men which is the case in my household excellent because <laughs> it is the london marathon i am assuming but I don't actually know. Kate, have you run any marathons yourself? I have, yeah, 10 of them. 10? So I'm doing London. Yeah, London will be my 11th. I hope I've counted that right. Not so that you're doing cares, it this me, weekend? But... I am, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Are you are you running for a charity? I'm doing it for fun, um, which I realise is, you know, a fair amount of people probably don't think running 26.2 miles is fun, but it is for me. I did a, a marathon about six or seven weeks ago. Oh my gosh. It was kind of my, my goal race and I did that and so this one is just kind of, I'm pacing a friend actually, which is I think one of the best ways to run a marathon because you have all the kind of adrenaline of wanting to go and do it decently for them but the the feeling of them of like helping someone to a to a personal best or whatever is just so awesome. It's great. The best friend ever. I can't be- I mean <laughs> I have again in inverted commas run one marathon i'm not going to tell you my time it wasn't very good but i made it round i i don't think i'd ever run a marathon for someone i, d- I just can't imagine doing that just for... well it's not entirely unselfish i mean it's fun for me as well i think the thing is if you're racing a marathon like you develop a sort of tunnel vision you look mm. ahead of you you you're, you're pushing to the limit of your ability whatever that is on the day and so you stop taking in stuff you, you know i ran seville marathon you know, month and a half ago whenever it was i couldn't tell you anything about the course there's a few moments i remember looking up and being like oh that's pretty but honestly the rest of it i just have no idea whereas if you're slowing down a little bit and like helping somebody else but at a pace that's more comfortable for you mm. you take a lot more in so like i paced a friend a couple of years ago in london and it was the most fun i've ever had uh, on, on a race i was just grinning around waving at everybody probably pissing off everyone around me of course um but just it was brilliant so it's yeah it's not it's not unselfish i get a medal at the end and that's uh, true. you know yeah some really that? crappy things in a goodie bag yeah. <laughs> do they still give you like a can of um <laughs> London Pride or something. I remember they did that. I don't think they do in London. You get a voucher, I think, now in London, which you can take to a pub and they'll give you a pint. And I mean, there's loads of races where actually Berlin Marathon, they give you beer at the finish line. It's non-alcoholic beer, but it does taste absolutely amazing. Um, Obviously, it's a drink that, you know, any other time you think is disgusting. But when you've just run 26 miles, it tastes awesome but yeah london they give you i think it's a voucher in the goodie bag and then various other like random things and like a, and a mint well, like one solitary there was one mint. really cheery year yeah there was one great year where they were like there was like a three pack of cadbury stuff in it which was Oof. great and then the next year you got like this thing of i think it was like biltong or whatever that dried meat 
Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm vegetarian anyway, but surely no one has ever finished a marathon and thought, you know what, I really want some dried meat. You know what I want right now? A bit of beef jerky. Lovely stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever eaten beef jerky, like, ever. I don't think... <laughs> I mean, the real reason to do it, though, right, is the tinfoil cape, isn't it? You know, oh, the, yeah. the yeah. sheet I mean, of tinfoil you can... that you wrap yourself in afterwards, which I d- still don't know yeah. why you wrap yourself in it, but you do anyway, or at least I did. <laughs> Got lots yeah, of I don't think you'll taken. see many of them on Sunday because it's supposed to be really hot, but yes, they, are, they are surprisingly good at keeping you warm. Like I've been, sometimes they give you them in races all sort of wrapped up in a little pouch, and I always keep them because they're really useful for before the start of a race, you know, when it's... Yeah cold before when everyone's just standing around yes, you wrap yourself yeah. in one of those and then just sort of you know put it in the bin before you start it's you quite handy what? and I also s- very stylish yeah i've still got mine i, I kept it forever <laughs> apparently it's probably really gross i wrapped it on my sweaty salty body and then just <laughs> put it in a cupboard somewhere for the next eight years anyway let's not dwell on that it's okay <laughs> It's probably civilizations have formed on that. Probably. And also, I found it when I moved house quite recently, and, and I didn't throw it away. So, it's it, it moved house with me. It's moved house with me, like, three times. Again, let's not dwell on that. So, what is so special about the London Marathon? I've done... So there's, like, six world major marathons. So, there's London, Berlin, Tokyo, Chicago, Boston, New York. And I've done so far five of those six and haven't done Boston yet and London yeah the, the first time I did London I did it because I decided I wanted to do a marathon and it was obviously the most convenient one living in London to do and I didn't really have high expectations because a lot of the course was kind of bits of my run home from work or mm. you know I grew up in London there's nothing particularly like wow look at that for me about it and then I did it and I was completely blown away that I mean the support on the course is incredible it's unbelievable and because London the streets you know they're not that wide you, you, these people are, who are cheering or whatever are quite close to you compared to I don't know in New York where the roads are about three miles wide so you get that incredible support it's amazingly well organized like I don't know you just don't really think of British things as being slick. It's not really a word that you apply to no, British organisation really generally. No, it is, isn't it? Um, but it's amazing. You, you you cross the finish line and, like, I remember in Berlin Marathon, I crossed the finish line, stumbled along a bit, got my beer, got my medal, and then stumbled sort of to the, like, the bag drop bit and got to the, you know, it was all organised by number. So, I don't know, say I was, like, number 75. I went to the bit that was, like, 70 to 80. Mm. And I sort of staggered there and I looked at them and I went you're wearing your number in front of me uh, in your front of your vest and they just kind of looked at me like yeah can we help you and I was like what do you think I want whereas in London you cross the line you sort of do your stagger and then you look up and someone is holding your bag out to you oh yeah it's like Um, it's like a military and that bag is suddenly like the best thing you've ever seen in your life because it's got the things that you really want in it whatever food it is that you crave when you finish or you know clean clothes or whatever um, so it's incredibly well organised, and you know, running. I think running marathons generally is quite an emotional experience, mm-hmm. both for the runners and for people watching them, because you see people at their absolute physical limits, pushing pushing beyond them, um, and it's quite kind of a. I don't know. I, <laughs> my inspiring. theory on marathon running is it's 
it is inspiring and it's also I've developed this theory about um, marathon running is a bit like a really bad Hollywood movie that you know is really naff and really cliched and you shouldn't have tears in your eyes because you're a grown up and you should be more sophisticated but somehow you just kind of can't help yourself mm. you see somebody kind of staggering over that line and you just well up um, and then if you're running it you're, you're even worse you're basically kind of you, you have the emotional maturity of about a four year old when you run marathons and um, you, kind of, you can only see things. Oh God, yeah, yeah, Even totally. Like I think you still feel. Oh yeah, yeah. It. I mean, if I, <laughs> I think you get to about mile twenty-two, and you basically you've got you can go one of two ways. You're either going to be a complete and utter mess, burst into tears, and want your mum, or you become the hero in your own little superhero story, which is why it's like being a five-year-old. You know, there's that kind of extreme of emotion. There's nothing in between. And, uh, and yeah, so you kind of, if you, if you get it right, if, you, if you're happy and you cross that line and you're happy with your time and you've done the thing that you have been kind of obsessing over for months, then there's no feeling like that. And I think maybe that's also partly because a lot of us who run you know our everyday lives you know i'm 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 a journalist and write, i write stuff but you know you never really finish things in life mm-hmm. generally you kind of get them to a point where you think okay that'll do i can't have spend any more time on that uh, so that's done marathon running is is a very very simple you run it as quickly as you can until you cross the line i mean any race is like that but that kind of simplicity is quite unusual in our lives i think kate thank you so much for joining us we wish you the best of luck on sunday oh thank you very much welcome to dunleavy does disney dunleavy what disney did you did this week this week i watched 2000s as in the year 2000 as in, let's all meet up in The Emperor's New Groove, which is a buddy comedy, how I can best describe it, that I had not seen before. Have you guys seen it? I have not. I did watch it for the purposes of this podcast. Did you like it? God, no. It was really bad, and it has John Goodman in it, and I don't usually say bad things about John Goodman. I did just keep going, oh, John Goodman. I know, it's... Have we saw Yosra last week? And Yosra told me she really liked it. She said it was one of her favourite Disney films. I know. I can only think that it must be because she was really little when she saw it and she's not seen it since. Or perhaps, you know, she's just seeing something in it that I'm not seeing. I can give you a little bit of a plot summary. It's about this little shit, basically, (laughs) who wears pap butcher earrings. And he is the emperor of uh, South American Empire of old. Right. And just, know, just wait, Jen. Just okay. wait. Yeah, he's played by David Spade. Um, he gets turned into a llama mm-hmm. by That's right. a oh. character played by Eartha Kitts because he, I mean, he is a real little shit. He talks about people throwing him off his groove. And there's a bit, I mean, I don't think groove has ever really been that trendy a word but there is actually a moment in this where you actually hear Groovy. it's death now that you just know nobody's ever going to use it again when Disney's saying talking about getting on their groove that just means that it is no longer funny or entertaining or indeed a word you would ever use again 
who cares about the groove of an entitled prick? Exactly. I mean, it's described on Wikipedia as a slapstick comedy. I mean, I would say it it is that except for the fact that that would suggest that it's that it's actually funny contemporary reviews are inexplicably good for it seriously i don't know people were still doing a lot of coke in 2000 weren't they maybe people were just so relieved that the millennium bug didn't turn into a thing that that they just went oh let's watch that film that film's quite good because the animation is really bad it's weird it looks like the cartoon network the animation is so bad. It looks like something you watched in the 1980s on TV that was a bit shit. I thought you were going to say, so Jen, it looks like something you drew. Yeah. yeah. No. I thought that was um, a personal attack, mate. <laughs> it does this thing where it just, like, batters you with jokes. Absolutely batters you. There's a, there's a bit where there's a dinner party and there's about 30 jokes and after the first one didn't work, you would have hoped someone would have gone, they don't work, but they just keep throwing more jokes at you this oh, is that like, the one where they're in the restaurant and they keep avoiding each other it's like faulty towers oh no no, no no but that's another one where i have to get yeah. it. it's when cronk does the cooking now, cronk? cronk is actually quite funny he's played by it's david charming. warburton who is who patrick is, warburton patrick warburton i'm sorry who is dave puddy that's why i said that who's um any excuse to mention jld it does have one interesting thing that's worth pointing out which is that the character played by wendy malick who is plays john goodman's wife in it she's great pregnant and visibly pregnant and i don't think that's ever happened in a disney film before she has a baby lump bump that's the word isn't it a baby bump she's pregnant with a stork who then delivers it to the elephant yeah (laughs) which is and that's basically it he he turns into a llama they they hang around together they you know he's not a llama anymore i don't really know what i will say is that normally i go on wikipedia to try and find some you know fun facts and normally most of what i say is from what i've seen and then a little bit from what i've read but in this case actually there's more interesting things on wikipedia about this film than there was actually in watching this film so do you want to know some yeah, fun, tell me facts? Some fun facts well this started life as, as something called the kingdom of the sun now this also this sounds a bit like you know in uh, in 30 rock they do it when like a thing goes through development so much it starts off as a, a reality television program and it ends up as a sitcom well this started off as a prince and the pauper style thing called the kingdom of the sun and Disney lost confidence in it because... Because they'd already made that in Aladdin. Well, also because the two films that come immediately before this hadn't done very well. Mm-hmm. So they did the thing, they cut the investment to it, which is ridiculous because if, if, if you think something might be as shit as the last two things you just made, putting less money into it isn't going to yeah. fix that problem particularly. They had also apparently tied in a promotion with McDonald's and Coke, which means they had to hit a release date. Now, again, that doesn't really say much for artistic integrity. We've got no money, but we've got to keep McDonald's happy. Which Coke? (laughs) (laughs) Drinky or sniffy? So it was overhauled. I do actually have a quote that I took. Just in case you can hear any background noise. Oh, some drilling started. Comedy writer David Reynolds stated, quote, I pitched a simple comedy that's basically a buddy road picture with two guys being chased in the style of a Chuck Jones tune but faster paced and Disney said give it a shot that I mean Disney said yeah what the fuck that'll do so that's what happened it was completely rewritten uh, Sting was brought on board to write some tunes for it the, the, all my favourite facts of this are now Sting based he's, he's the new Phil Collins what well, I was going to say um, this sounds familiar he said Sting said that he would only get involved if Trudy Styler was allowed to document the process of 
him writing the songs, which is amongst the most pretentious things I've ever heard in my life. A number of his songs were dropped and they ended up with just a beginning and an end song that were written by uh, Sting. The the beginning song is called Perfect World. Uh, Sting decided that he was too old to sing it so he asked them to get somebody else so they got uh, Tom Jones who is 11 years older <laughs> than, uh, than I Sting. Thought, I thought Tom Jones yeah. was in it. <laughs> and then they showed Sting the ending in which, oh by the way the guy in it, the emperor, he's called Kuzco. Now, Cusco. Now, apparently, he's called Cusco. They did have an original name. He was going to be called Manco, which apparently means vagina in Japanese or something. So they decided to change it to Cusco, despite the fact that Cus is Tony Soprano's word of choice for vagina. And adding co on the end just makes it sound like a warehouse company for Cusco fannies. is a city in Peru, though, so I think it's supposed to give it that South American flavour. Yeah, that South American flavour. <laughs> Apparently, they spent quarter of a million pounds promoting this to the Latino market because they thought that David Spade <laughs> and the hilarious South American feel would appeal to Mexicans. They love uh, llamas, though. They love a uh, llama. Yeah, it's true. They love a llama. Anyway, uh, let me get back to this. So, what happens in the end of the film originally is that he builds this amusement park called Cuscotopia, right, on another hill, and he destroys a rainforest in order to build an amusement park, right? Sting. Oh, he didn't like that, He didn't like that. No, he didn't. Sting. Sting said, I wrote them a letter and said, you do this, I'm resigning, because this is exactly the opposite of what I stand for. I've spent 20 years trying to defend the rights of indigenous people and you're just marching over them to build a theme park. I will not be party to this. Oh, please tell me, Disney Chet, that he, when he said resign, he meant not just from the film, but from life in general, or from working life in general. No, it was rewritten. And in the end now, Cusco has tantric sex for four and a half hours <laughs> and then just is insufferably dull. Mm. There's a Buster Keaton moment as well, isn't there? That goes on for about three hours, where they're just hanging off a, some sort of monument. Oh yeah, that, that is. It is all. It is. There is no. There's no. It's all long drops. It's awful. This is. This is ridiculous. It's all long drops. There's no logic. There's a bit in it where they're pushing along an old cart, and then someone's got a floor polisher. So it's like entirely incongruous ideas about what things it's, existed. It's like positively wacky. There's is, a bit where they end up and it goes, well, how did you get here before me? And they go, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. Oh, well. And you're like, oh, my God. It's, <laughs> it's an hour and 18 minutes long and it is too that long. It is too long. Too long for, for this. For Disney film. Well, too long, just too long for this. It's just, I don't know what else to say. It's, well, in that case. It's not good. What score are you going to give it? I'm going to give it, um, I'm going to give it two. Why? Sorry, two what? Two... I can't really justify this to myself out of five. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. This is the first time I'm confused by a a result. I mean, it's not it's not bad in well it is bad. But okay. It's really bad. It's really bad. But there are some things that I think it should be probably slightly congratulated on. Like having a pregnant woman is quite is quite um Is it two stars good though? It's one of the stars because you've um Re-establish the word groove in your vocabulary. Oh, God, it's 
consistent. Yeah, she's changed her name it's on Twitter to Hannah the Grooved and Levy. If it didn't exist, I wouldn't be able to just laugh at these stupid stories about Sting. But there are loads of stupid stories about Sting. Yeah, okay. It up with Shaggy. One, this film has 80... Oh, my God. So on the radio the other day, I actually heard someone go... <laughs> Steve Wright, I think it was, in the afternoon. He said, the unmistakable sound of Sting and Shaggy. And I was just like, my mind has blown. What the fuck? Like, what... You thought 2017 and 16 were weird? What is this shit? But at the Grammys, Lord won an award and did not perform... Sting and Shaggy performed twice. I didn't even know this had happened. I didn't even know that Sting and Shaggy was a thing. Like, my mind's literally blown. Anyway, sorry. They're writing a Disney film, Hannah. Oh, I fucking hope so. Yeah, one, 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 two, one and a half, one and a half or two out of five. I did not know that that had happened. <laughs> that was a thing. What the fuck? Like, what prompted that collaboration? That's all from us this week. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you had a good time, as ever, we did. Next week, it is a gig cast week and you can hear me and Sarah Milliken. When we say Sarah, you know who we mean, right? But you can hear me and Sarah chatting to Roisin Connerty, Bridget Christie and Issy Sutty. I mean, if that isn't like a cream of the comedy crop at the moment, I don't know what is. But before that, there will be a Chops on Sunday... We were lucky enough to catch up with Rowan Davis, Head of Policy and Campaigns at Mumsnet, who told us all about the recent Mumsnet report on a survey into the long-term impacts of postnatal care. There's some interesting and, to be honest with you, pretty horrific stuff in there, and it is well worth a listen, whether you've got kids or not. As ever, if you like us, please do share the joy and tell a friend or a stranger. Use this information to make friends. I reckon that could work. And if you fancy popping over to iTunes to rate and review us, it really is very helpful and we can make it very easy for you by just suggesting you pop in five stars. Lovely stuff. You may well be thinking, listening to talking is all well and good, but I want to see mouths moving in front of my very eyes. Well, have at it. We have got an absolutely killer lineup of brilliant women coming up at our gigs. The next one is at Leicester Square Theatre in London on April the 29th and features Lucy Mangan, Rachel Paris and Shazia Mirza. It's going to be a corker. And we've got one in Manchester at the Lowry Theatre at Salford on May the 20th where Hannah and I are joined by Julie Hesmanhall and Lou Conran. Also going to be a smasher. So yeah, book your tickets. You can find out more information at Sarah's website, sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Please do follow us on Twitter at Standard Issue UK and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and you can follow us individually. I'm at Mixed Noonan, Jen is at Inspira Jen and Hannah is at That Dunleavy. Thanks very much for listening and until the next time, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.